Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Kate Brody on her debut novel, Rabbit Hole. Kate Brodie received her MFA from NYU and has published stories in the Literary Review, Piff, 34th Parallel and The Dirty Napkin. And today we're here to talk about Kate's debut novel, which is Rabbit Hole. Kate, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. First of all, would you tell us how you would describe this novel? So I would describe it as literary fiction with thriller elements. And um, the story follows our protagonist, Teddy Angstrom starting when her father uh, dies by suicide on the anniversary of her sister's disappearance. And that event leads her um, down this online rabbit hole of conspiracies that her father was involved in. So it, it's a book that's looking at Teddy's grief and how she's coping with these different but dual losses and kind of uses some genre elements to explore also um the phenomenon of of true crime fandom. So Teddy then, it's a first person narration, so we obviously see this the story from inside Teddy's head. Um tell us something more about who she is outside of this tragedy. So she when the book opens she's in her mid 20s. Her sister disappeared 10 years ago and there was never really any closure on that case. So I think a lot of the way that Teddy is when the book opens is because of that event. She's a little bit stuck. She's in um, a state of paralysis to some degree. She still lives at home with her parents. She teaches uh, English at the school that she herself attended. So there's a sense in which she has not allowed her life to move forward. And that's true for her, her parents as well, that they're kind of frozen in time when at the, you know, at the moment when her sister disappeared. But then this this other event, the event that opens the book, her father's suicide, I think kind of jolts her out of that complacency and forces her to think about who she's going to be as an adult, which is a sort of painful, delayed adolescent process that she has to deal with. I think because she doesn't really know herself very well and um, her whole life kind of revolves around her work, which is she's a teacher, she's good at it. And then when that starts to deteriorate and her, you know, she, her relationships have never really been a big part of her life, she ends up clinging to this 
19-year-old amateur sleuth, who uh, Mickey, who is like her sister's doppelganger in a way, and trying to, I think, kind of hold on to that less remaining connection to her family. Uh, but she's also, I think, somebody who is sort of dryly funny. She has a dog that she cares about a great deal, who means a lot to her, who's, who's sick at the start of the book. And she's somebody who I think is an observer of the rest of the world, has a lot of opinions about things. And those come through um, in her interactions with her half-brother and the people who live in her town and, and things like that. We'll come back to Mickey because I want to talk about a few of the, the main characters of the book, first of all, we get, before we get onto some of the book's themes. Um, so her, her sister Angie, who is the one that disappeared, tell us something about who she was. Yeah, so Angie is this, she's an absence, but she kind of looms over the whole book. I think I'm very interested in memory and the way memory works with grief. And so Angie was this incredibly difficult, prickly teenager kind of a burnout, kind of the black sheep of the family. She had some um, disciplinary problems at school, some like drug-related incidents. She was not an academic superstar. But then when she disappears, you know, she gets flattened into this fictional version almost, right? In these true crime communities, she becomes like so many other victims of any kind of crime or, or disappearance. She becomes something else. She's a missing teenager. She's kind of frozen in um, amber. And that, I think, is the thing that Teddy is really grappling with, that it, it doesn't feel good to her to have her own memories of her sister, even if they're bad, they're her real memories, subsumed and overshadowed by this false narrative. And then on the other side, she has kind of an, an opposite thing happening with her dad, where her memories of him become eroded by other information that she finds out after his death. But I think because the book is interested in that question of like, how do you hold on to someone after they're gone? I wanted to make sure we had a sense of who Angie was before she disappeared and why her loss would feel especially complicated. I think because they can't completely deify her and just turn her into a saint, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be holding on to her. It would be kind of creating a false narrative. Angie and Teddy's mother, Claire, who has had a life full of various different tragedies. Tell us something about her and her background. Claire is maybe my favorite character in the book. I wrote a lot about her that didn't make it into the novel. So I just feel like I knew her really well before I started. But I had this sense of her as an outsider. She's from Ireland. She's also lived a lot of life before Teddy ever really showed up. You know, she was a poet got an MFA, had some sort of like anti-war protesting experience, had some significant relationships that, you know, she lost two partners. And um, the relationship she has with Teddy's father is her third relationship. And she's seen a lot of things and survived. So I think Claire is in some ways a foil to Teddy. She's deeply grieving at the outset of the book. And I think Teddy is frustrated by her inability to like pick herself up off the floor or get out of bed. But in some ways, Claire is modeling a, a sort of healthier kind of grief that she's just allowing herself to feel it. And she's done this before and she knows, she kind of knows she can survive anything in a way that I don't, I don't think Teddy knows that about herself. And so Claire's tough. And I wanted her to also, I think when you're building any character, you try to cut against expectations. So I didn't want her to 
feel like a stereotype. In some ways, she's the most liberal character in the book. She kind of talks openly about sex and relationships, and she's not a huge drinker. Like there are things where I wanted her to feel specific and unexpected. So I had a lot of fun writing Claire. And then Mark, the father, who is the character that has died at the very beginning of the novel. He is Teddy's father, but he wasn't Angie's father. There's quite a sort of convoluted family background there as well. Tell us something about what's happened to him at the beginning of the novel. Then I had a, an idea of him as kind of the black sheep of this family. I was actually, this is, I, I wrote the book, I guess, mostly during the Trump administration. But I had sort of been interested in the Biden family only insofar as I remember reading like Hunter Biden took up with his brother's widow for a brief period. And that was a news story here anyway. And um, that was fascinating to me. Just like, what would that do to a family, especially a family that's already living in the public eye, that you have this relationship that almost feels like bordering on incestual, but it's not. And it happens quite commonly because those people understand the grief that you're feeling. So that was, was sort of the model for Mark and Claire's relationship, that she had, you know, been with his brother prior to getting together with Mark. So there is something odd about that. And then Mark is the Angie of his own family. He is kind of the black sheep of his own family. And I think you know, where we can look at Angie and say like, well, she would have grown out of that. Her dad really didn't. He's He is an adult who is still kind of struggling with all of these substance abuse issues and almost like his own failure to launch kind of thing. So he is another sort of absence that I needed to make felt in the book in a specific way. But he is similar to Angie in that they're both they're both not people that um, Teddy really has the choice to remember as perfect people. She wants to remember them as they are, but that means holding on to like a lot of painful truths about who they were. The thing that's amazing to me about this idea of like how transgressive it feels that he has married his his brother's widow is that, yeah, that feels very transgressive now, but it's something that would have been normal, like incredibly normal, like far in the past. It's just something that yeah. seems very odd now. Right. That's true. And I think at the time, so I was teaching high school English like Teddy and teaching a lot of 17th, 18th, 19th century literature. There are elements of the book that, I mean, at least I recognize as being influenced by those things. But I think this idea of like complicated family dynamics or half-siblings, siblings that are are not quite full siblings, cousins that are really not cousins, who are maybe more like romantic attachments. That um, I remember teaching books, you know, where that came up and the kids were horrified. <laughs> by those relationships um, or confused by them. But the family structure in a lot of older novels is complicated and the characters just sort of roll with it. Everybody takes it in stride because that's the, the, you know, the life that they're living. You mentioned that the book deals with various themes of grief and Mark has been self-medicating for a long time. His way of, of dealing with Angie is through drink and drugs, but then obviously then has gone into this sort of spiral of the online conspiracies and that. So this obviously is something that becomes apparent to Teddy like very early on. So what has he been doing? Teddy, I think, had a sense, and Claire had a sense that he had not let go of Angie, like he had not moved on from it. But they they were sort of agreeing not to dig into whatever that meant, you know, the way. And I think this happens a lot in families, especially when you have someone who has any kind of substance abuse issues. You get very 
used to just trying to ignore as much as you can because you can only like address the crises as they come and then everything else you're just like I, I don't have the bandwidth for that so he had been digging into these online communities which it is a very real phenomenon of online communities that look into cold case disappearances and um I'm interested in these groups kind of anthropologically. And so I was interested in like, well, what would happen if that wasn't just a thing I was reading about? What if that was, you know, my family? Um, In this case, it's his stepdaughter who he really treats as his own. And I think even if it's far-fetched or feels like a wild goose chase, I understand I understand feeling like I have to turn every stone here. And um you know, what if I stop paying attention to this and then I miss something? That's how he's devoted 10 years is really just chasing down these non-leads and um, following every last conspiracy theory to its conclusion. And I think is ultimately, when I think about, you know, his suicide at the start of the book, the frustration of that, that he's just continually failing over and over again at trying to help his family. And just one more character then, you mentioned Mickey already, and while we're not going to give too much away about Mickey, because she is a character that becomes sort of involved in the plot of the novel, tell us something about who she is um, when Teddy meets her first. Sure. So I mentioned I was teaching um, like a lot of Gothic literature at the time. I love doppelganger books. I knew right from the start I wanted to have doppelgangers in the book and an Angie doppelganger. So she's about 19. So she's, you know, about the age Angie was when she disappeared. Teddy finds her similar to Angie, physically similar. She reminds her in a lot of ways, just she's kind of, you know, Mickey has a lot of tattoos and piercings and the things that Angie was sort of, the look that Angie was sort of chasing. So Teddy sees her, I think, as her sister's doppelganger. I wanted it to be kind of an open question whether or not Mickey actually resembles Angie. You know, we're we're getting everything through Teddy's point of view. And we don't hear other characters in the book comment on that fact that she's a dead ringer for Angie or anything. So I think it hopefully it's kind of an open question whether or not Mickey is like the second coming of Angie or Teddy is just looking for signs everywhere. But Mickey is herself kind of lost. She had a relationship with Mark where she was helping him because of her position in the local library, do all of this research. And then she quickly endears herself to Teddy, but she's very reticent to discuss her own background. She seems a little bit like she's from nowhere and doesn't have any connections to anyone. So she's an odd character right off the bat, but one that Teddy is really drawn to and I think is sort of hoping, I think they're both hoping for some kind of sister relationship, but it's so hard to recreate that. I mean, I think um, I have two sisters. I'm obviously very interested in that specific relationship, but that relationship, I love writing about it because it's so complicated. You have the same background as your sister. They grew up in the same house as you. You're going through the world, you know, in the same era and both, you know, as women, it can be so charged, just highly emotional, supportive, competitive. You can see yourselves in each other. The ways that you're different feel sometimes so discordant and it's very hard to recreate that in a friendship. So I think that was what I was trying to do is think about, well, what what would this relationship be like? They're both coming to it with so much desire and so much intensity. 
but it's not right. It's not a, it's not the real thing. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Kate Brody, and we're talking about her debut novel, Rabbit Hole. And Kate, the book is set in Maine, coastal Maine in the US. Tell us why, first of all, and something about what that area is like. Yeah, so I um I spent a good amount of my time. I grew up in New Jersey, but we spent a lot of time in Vermont and Massachusetts. I really love New England. I think uh this again is kind of a, a nod to the gothic like thinking about gothic settings to me Maine just evokes all of that it's very rugged um you have the sea and the, the cliffs the woods everything feels sort of perfect for that kind of story but also i think in some ways i'm just paying homage to a lot of the stories that i love that are set in Maine and and loved as a kid it had a particular fascination for me when i was a child I really campaigned for us to take a family trip to Maine for years and years because I was reading a lot of books that were set in Maine and it just felt like this kind of magical literary place. And my father, who's he's dead now, but um, he finally shut down all the campaigning and he said to me, you know, we're not going to Maine. Maine is where people go to kill themselves. And I think what he meant was, you know, just knock it off, like stop bothering me and I don't want to go there. It rains too much. But I was young and um, took it kind of literally that Maine was where people went to kill themselves. 
And I don't know, just the way someone can say something odd to you when you're young and it it nestles into your brain, I think then it only kind of increased the mystique of this place that like there was something maybe also slightly sinister in addition to it being magical. And then, you know, that I do just find that part of the world really interesting. But yeah, so that I think those elements were what kind of led me to set the book there. And Maine is also a very interesting state in that is not like the rest of New England, which feels a little bit like there's a common thread between, you know, say, Connecticut and Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Maine is highly independent. The people of Maine are really, they have a a huge amount of regional pride. Their politics tend to be a little bit different than the rest of the region. They are almost like libertarian, like just very self-reliant. So thinking about, you know, where would this political family be located? Teddy's grandparents were politicians. That also was interesting to me that this is a place that maybe feels idiosyncratic, which is always rich for fiction. The book uses recreates chat groups like um, AOL Instant Messenger and Reddit and MySpace even. And I wanted to talk about that both this use of them in the book as part of the story, but also just the idea of recreating them in there. Because I was, as I was reading them, I was just thinking you must have had a load of fun coming up with these usernames, for instance. Yeah, a lot of the usernames are winks to people that I know. So my, my editor's name is Taz. Um, I snuck that into one of the usernames. It was very fun creating those. And probably the most research I did in the book was just reading a lot of Reddit threads and getting a feel for the voice. I wanted, I really wanted to get the voice right. I think that's the the most prominent craft feature of Reddit. You know, there's no um, pictures, you know, it's not like Instagram, you're not going to traffic in imagery. There's really no profile. It's not like Teddy would be, you know, creating this avatar for herself. It's just voice. It's a cacophony of disembodied, often anonymous voices. And I think that's what makes it scary in some scenes that Teddy feels like she's being watched and talked about by people she can't see or know. But yeah, I I knew that I would have to include the internet in this book. I wrote a manuscript before this book that kind of went nowhere. And I intentionally said it in the 90s because I just didn't want to deal with the question of technology. And then that started to feel like a cop out to me because this really is how we live now. This is how so much of our communication is accomplished via whatever, you know, text or post or DM. And in this case, if you're digging into your sister's disappearance, that's going to involve these communities, which are such strange places. I and mean, they really are fascinating groups to to study because there's it's not it's not 100% negative it's not all bad i think there's something nice about reddit something that feels kind of retro that you can find the things you're interested in and just be in a chat room with people but again the idea that teddy you know she stumbles upon at one point like a group of people talking about the way she looks in her field hockey uniform from when she was a teenager and um that is really scary to me just that you don't know you don't know where you exist on the internet, really. You mentioned specifically earlier the um, cold case groups and things and people that are online um, anthropologically being interested in those sort of groups. And and obviously this the book looks at this sort of thing as well. And it, it is sort of fascinating, this idea that on the one hand, this to me feels very gross, this idea that like people are using 
real life cases and dead people for some sort of like online titillation and entertainment. And then you put that against clearly the idea in the people that are doing this heads that they are like somehow detectives who are actually doing something to help in the cases. And clearly in some cases that does happen. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, let's just talk about the very sort of like, I guess, just the ethics of, of this idea of like online sleuthing. Yeah, so I I mean, probably anthropologically is is, um, also giving myself too much credit. I I was swept up in the true crime thing like everyone else a few years ago and Serial was huge and the staircase, the jinx, all of that stuff. But after a while, I noticed the, I don't know, I was becoming very numb to it. And there was one instance in particular I was watching. I like logged on to Netflix. They offered me a couple of choices. One of them I clicked on, it was like for fans of true crime. And it was the most upsetting look at this man who had very recently murdered his pregnant wife and their two kids. And I just came away from it thinking like, what am I doing? This is perverted that I'm, you know, I could have watched reruns of The Office and instead I I swiped over to the next thing and I watched this man kill his whole family. And I think that's when I started to think more critically about the genre and the the sort of fakeness of it. Like as a fiction writer, I feel so many fictional elements in those stories. You know, I feel the producer shaping a narrative out of, you know, sometimes random events. I feel them shaping character. And it didn't feel true to my experience of any kind of loss, you know, that these particularly horrific losses would adhere to some kind of very tidy fictional narrative. I just started to question what I was doing. Because I think I think we tell ourselves a lot of reasons why we do things. You know, I hear people say like, oh, well, women watch a lot of the demographics are it's mostly women who watch these things. You know, women watch them because it is a like safe way to explore your fears about the world. And I get all of that. But I do think there is just an element of titillation and entertainment and rubbernecking. At least that's I started to feel like if I was being honest with myself, that's what I was in it for. So, yeah, I think now I'm I'm a little bit skeptical about true crime. I think it is kind of an unethical genre. I try to avoid it as much as possible. I just think it's not healthy for me as the viewer to think of people as subjects or characters when they're not, when they're real people. And so with the book, I was kind of interested in I guess this challenge of then could you write a book that is fictional and the characters aren't real? and uh, make the story of what happened feel closer to the real story that doesn't get told. So yeah, that was kind of where it came from. The The online communities is interesting because like you said, they they do sometimes actually make breaks in these crimes. They find information. In a few cases, it's been useful to families. And I think a lot of families participate in it with the hope that it's going to help. There was a case, it was last year, there was a series of murders at, not a series, it was a mass murder at University of Idaho. I think it was four students were found dead and no one could figure out who killed them or why or what the motive was. And ultimately they did, but it took a really, really long time. And there's something called, I think it's called Crime Con, like a convention. It's kind of like Comic Con where people go and they gather to talk about blood spatter and they talk about these cases. And one of the the mothers of one of the students who was killed went to CrimeCon and she wasn't resentful towards the attendees, but she she did say, I just want to talk to you about my son, Ethan, who is like a real person. 
And for a while, those groups had speculated that Ethan, who ultimately, you know, was found this other person who they arrested, killed all four of these people. But people online were speculating that it was a murder-suicide and he was behind it all. And I just kept thinking like, God, this woman, it's such a better person than I am. Because if I ran into any of these people who were speculating that my son who was killed was actually a murderer and, you know, on the basis of nothing, like they're not detectives, they're not police officers, I would not have the graciousness and the presence to show up to this kind of gruesome convention just to to kind of offer an olive branch and, and speak so, I don't know, politely to everybody. So yeah, I, I don't know. I have a lot of conflicting feelings about it. I understand. And I think in Teddy's case too, they probably, her family probably would have embraced the outside interest in Angie's disappearance because it means media attention. It means resources. But then after a while, it, it always curdles into something a little bit more sinister. So to finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yeah, would love to. I'll read. Um, this is a short selection from pretty close to the beginning of the book, and I don't really think it needs any introduction. We cremate him to get it over with, and on Monday, while it's raining and everyone is home or at work, we sneak back onto the bridge where he killed himself to scatter his ashes through the hole he left behind. Is this the right place? Mom asks when we've already thrown half the dust. Where else? I'm holding a fistful of my father in a gloved hand. The ashes are coarse and gray, and Mom told me they taste of metal and eggs. She said she felt compelled to consume a small amount. I didn't ask any questions. I don't know, she says. You can let that go. I empty my hand, but some ashes stick to the wet suede. Mom says they are called cremains. They shouldn't make portmanteaus for stuff like this, I think. What they should do is find a way to make this powder smell like the person it came from, like bar soap and hidden chocolates. The mortician put the remains in a large square tin and covered them with loose cotton, like a bottle of aspirin. I thought it was a nice touch. It reminded me of the rabbit holes we used to find in the backyard as kids, covered over with the mamas down. Dad would poke at the cottony fluff using a stick so we could all peek at the bunnies, small as hamsters and blind, curled together for warmth. He would hold the barrier back for a moment, warning us not to touch anything and leave a scent or the mama rabbit would abandon her babies and they'd starve to death. Then he'd drop it gently. The cotton would fall and the bunnies would disappear, safe, ready for the mama to come home. We finished the work in silence. There is more to spread than I anticipated. I imagined one elegant sweeping gesture, but we have to return over and over to the supply until it becomes rote, a chore. Somewhere in the middle, it strikes me as funny. I laugh and mom laughs too, neither of us acknowledging the joke. And then at the end, it's sad again. At the end, when there's only a little powder left in the plastic lining and mom shakes it feebly over the jagged wooden posts, and I can tell we're both thinking how small it all feels, the end of a person. Why do you think he did it, mom asks. He was depressed, I say. You know that. He hadn't been himself for a long time. I guess not, she says. Maybe I should have known he might. He had never tried before, I don't think. She pauses. The date makes sense, the anniversary. That's funny, I say. We're out of ashes, so I peel off my soiled gloves and throw them down into the river. That's the part I understand the least. I can't imagine him wanting to steal Angie's thunder. I shake my head. That's putting it wrong. Let's get to the car, Mom says. This damp will chill your bones. She stares out over the bridge. She's not looking down into the shallows where his car fell, but out. Out towards the place where the river turns black in the shadow of the narrowing trees, where it snakes out of sight. 
the last part visible to the eye. This is a beautiful place, isn't it? Through my sunglasses, everything is cast in gray. Sky, trees, river like an artery of tar. Sure, I say, and I turn my parka into an umbrella, holding it above both our heads so we can run back to the car together. Soon it will be April, and then May, and then summer, and then for a moment this place will be briefly beautiful. I can imagine it for her. Anyway, she says when we're ten minutes into the drive home, we haven't spoken since the bridge. I'm not surprised with his obsession. What obsession? The little I could gather. Angie? All his theories. He was still doing that private detective stuff, I say, feigning incredulity even though I knew it was for his sake that we never acknowledged she was dead. At some point, we all tacitly agreed to not ask and not tell. We settled on treating him like a mental patient, and he settled on treating us like apostates. I guess he finally gave up, Mom says. So I've been talking to Kate Brody. We've been talking about her debut novel, Rabbit Hole, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury. Kate, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. Oh, thanks so much for chatting. I really enjoyed it. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.